Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 44, I interview Richard Jeffers, the founder and CEO of Two Bays Brewing Co. We discuss his varied career from Big Four Accounting to working at IBM, Telstra, Environmental Sciences, and even owning a Captain Snooze franchise. Realising he was celiac in 2015 changed the course of his life and led him to create his own gluten-free craft beer brand and launch one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. The journey of working out everything from scratch, starting without even having a recipe. Now having five gluten-free beer products and distribution in 1,700 plus locations across Australia within a few short years. If you're looking for a great gluten-free craft beer, look for Two Bays at your local bar or bottle shop or visit twobays.beer, that's T-W-O-B-A-Y-S dot B-E-E-R. So I'm here with Richard Jeffers, the founder and CEO of Two Bays Brewing Co. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. That's all right. So can you tell me what were you doing before you started Two Bays? What did you study? What type of companies or roles were you in? I think um, somebody once described it as quite an eclectic career, um, but I basically started as a cadet with um, a company, what was called Ernst & Winnie back in the day, so the precursor to Ernst & Young and studied accounting part-time through uni um, and really just enjoyed working with entrepreneurs. So basically, I worked in the small business um, advisory component of uh, Ernst & Young and, and um, just got to work with entrepreneurs in each of their own businesses so I didn't have to get stuck doing any of the audit side of things. Um, but very quickly decided that I liked the, the business side and would prefer to be on the the business side of the um, the the operations. So took my um, accounting and business qualification and ended up working towards CFO type positions um, in in different organisations, mainly um, mainly publicly listed ones. Mm-hmm. So some some ones. This is in the late eighties when the stock market was having a really good time until eighty seven, <laughs> and then it all. Uh, a bit of reality hit. So I've lived through a few of those corrections over time. Um, and then uh, finished off a degree, ended up at Telstra um, within their IT side of things. And that was really at the start of um, IT outsourcing in the, the sort of globally as well. So I worked on the Telstra deal team where we outsourced all Telstra's IT to um, IBM. Um, and that turned out to be the biggest global IT outsourcing deal at the time. Um, and we transferred, I forget the numbers now, but you know, close to 1,200 odd people out of Telstra into IBM um, and just decided as part of that deal that I thought it'd be more fun to be on the IBM side of the transaction rather than you know, remaining within Telstra on the procurement side, maybe beating up a supplier. It's kind of more fun to be the supplier and trying to um, deliver on some of the, um, the benefits that IBM had sold mm-hmm. into Telstra. Mm-hmm. So I joined IBM for... I can't remember how many years now. It's probably six or seven or, or eight. Um, and started on the Telstra deal um, and then decided that really wanted to work on other deals that IBM had secured in the meantime. So moved to Sydney, worked on the, the Optus account for a little bit. Um, and then Y2K came along um, and Telstra wanted to renegotiate uh, the outsource agreement and look at offshoring and, and some of these other 
um, things that were happening in, in the, mm -hmm. this was probably now, well, early 2000s. Um, so I moved back to Melbourne and worked on the deal team and led the negotiation from a Telstra, from an IBM perspective with um, Telstra on the negotiation of outsourcing um, a fair chunk of the work from IBM to IBM India. Uh, that ended up not happening um, at the time. Telstra, I think, subsequently did quite a lot of outsourcing, but they didn't at that transaction. Um, but they went back on to selling um, IT outsourcing deals and basically working on the, the sales side of IBM and their services division. So sort of always around services and selling um, people's skill set rather than selling product. Um, and that was uh, fantastic, but I just had this burning desire to do my own thing. So um wasn't quite life. wasn't quite like uh, a midlife crisis. I was a little, little bit too young at that stage. But we ended up buying um, a couple of betting franchises with Captain Snooze mm -hmm. um, and left the corporate world. And my wife and I um, started to run these smaller operations, franchise operations. Um, and that was, I, I say, in many ways, it was the best five years from up until the starting two base. Um, best five years of sort of my interest because I was able to be largely your own boss you've got rules and regulations but um your your own boss and we lived through the rebranding of snooze it was previously called captain snooze into snooze and um it was owned by freedom a large publicly listed company that was then um, delisted and so there's quite a lot of interesting things happening from a business perspective um and i learned a lot around you know ultimately much better to control the brand on your shop uh, and the brand on your business than being at the mercy of somebody else and they set the direction for and strategy for where the business might head. Um, so kind of around about 2008, we ended up selling out of, of that. Um, and then it was time, well, I think finances sort of pushed us back into the corporate world. Mm -hmm. um, and in that space, then my professional services background and selling and running professional services business led me to a company called Coffee International, which was an environmental consultants. Um, never heard of the industry before, but effectively we were selling scientists and engineers um, rather than IT professionals. Um, and spent the next couple of years with, with uh, Coffee as we went through a couple of restructures. And at the time it was going through a fairly heavy, it was publicly listed through mm -hmm. a fairly heavy acquisition phase. Um, and ultimately ended up as the general manager of all their Victorian operations, which was around 12 different lines of business, I think, at mm -hmm. the time. So everything from contaminated soil cleanup through to um, project management, um, building and fitting out sort of large buildings, um, uh, lots of mine, you know, mining. There's a whole range of services within this and, and trying to work out why, to be honest, um, why coffee bought all those different lines of business because I couldn't quite understand the, the <laughs> synergies. And, and ultimately I think it didn't um, probably gel as well. And it's obviously, it's had a, a journey as a, as a listed company uh, since, but still trading, which is good to see. Um, but that then led to, uh, so as part of that, they went through a restructure and decided all the people that they promoted into these general manager roles a year earlier, they had to make them redundant because they couldn't afford uh, a dual uh, line of business and management structure. Mm -hmm. um, so then I started basically just doing a bit of consulting work um, and ended up with one of the previous coffee people. And we actually built Australia's largest permanent um, contaminated soil treatment facility. So uh, a, a very significant investment with Macquarie Bank and, and um, some Canadian super funds behind that to build a very large 
plant down in Dandenong South that would receive and then treat and then make that contaminated soil available for reuse back in, in there. So it was a really nice closed circle, helped to, to work and clean up some of the sites that, um, you know, had laid in dormant for many years because there was no technology that could actually treat the, the underlying issue. Mm-hmm. Um, did that, went through a couple of um, hiccups along the way as, as sort of small businesses do and the ones, particularly ones that are, well, not small businesses, but ones that are really trying to um, change the game a bit. And mm. sometimes it's, it's not good to be a first mover. Uh, <laughs> and in this case, um, the, the business um, went into administration at one point. Um, it was acquired out of it. Um, and as part of that, we, we actually made a bid with a private equity distress fund to actually purchase that business and um, ultimately were unsuccessful, probably in hindsight, thankfully. Um, and, um, you know, that business was traded, but then that led me to um, doing some, needing to do some other work. Um, and along the way, sort of 2015, I got diagnosed with celiac disease, uh, which meant that I could no longer have gluten at all in, in my diet. So um, that kind of immediately took out beer. Um, mm-hmm. And I was a big fan of craft beer. And um, so in a discussion, I think, with my brother who, who owns a craft brewery, he said, why don't you start a gluten-free craft brewery? And I said, well, that's a bloody great idea. And um, the rest is history. So that was sort of late 2016, around Christmas 2016, and um, really started the journey in, in February of 2017 when I went across to the US and did a, um, a gluten-free craft brewery crawl from Portland all the way over to um, uh, Quebec. Um, mm. Sorry, so, Montreal. Um, so, yeah. So no, really fascinating and, and winding and and uh, interesting and career journey. Eclectic for sure, career journey. And uh, going back to the start, like you said, you wanted to be an accountant, but you liked sort of business. Were your parents in business? Did you like numbers? How did you sort of start accounting as your sort of entry point into the business world? It, it, it's it's interesting. So. You, um, it was a while ago, um, and my recollection is vague. But um, <laughs> I, I don't, I didn't actually remember even studying accounting at, at um, uh, in HSC or VCE at the time. Um, but my mark said that I did, so I must have. <laughs> um, but I remember, um, you know, Ernst and Young coming along and offering up these cadetships, and I mm. thought that sounded like you know a, a bit of fun. So that, I don't think I don't. Well, I don't know if that happens today, but basically. The deal was you started with them um, full-time for two years, I think it was, and studied your first year of uni um, part-time um, and then went back to uni two, two years full-time and then went back to um, Ernst & Young at the end of the, the uh, your degree, um, but you'd had two years' worth of work experience. Um, and I thought that sounded a good thing, so I must have put in an application and was <laughs> was successful. So um, And that was fantastic. I, you know, I loved it. And... I immediately, um, you know, I was always pretty good with with numbers and the sort of logic of, of mm-hmm. things. And, um, you know, I, I just immediately loved working with our customers and, and seeing what sort of businesses they ran and, you know, anything from courier, you know, fairly large mm-hmm. courier companies with, you know, 30, 40, 50 um, courier vans on the road through to um, uh, Ferrari Fashion One was, was one of our customers mm-hmm. that I recall, you know, vividly and they're still around today, you know, when you want to hire a tux for an event. Mm. Um, so it was those, those sort of um, businesses and um, I just kind of liked working on it because as, at that stage I was working very closely with them. Um, you know, you really got to understand with working with the CEO on how the business worked. And um, so when the opportunity 
presented to leave the, well, I, was, I think I was coming up to, close to the end of my second, my two years, and I didn't really want to go back to uni full time. I was quite mm. enjoying working. I probably wasn't focusing on my studies anywhere near hard enough. Um, <laughs> but the opportunity presented to go and work um, at a very senior level in a subsidiary of a publicly listed company it was, it also was publicly listed. Um, but it was a smaller publicly listed company. Um, and I sort of progressed through this group over the next sort of couple of years um, and just just loved being on that side. I found the accounting I could get, but it wasn't, um, you know, I also found it a little repetitive for what I was looking for. So over time, you know, that, that for, formed me into it, but over time I moved into a more business development and sales career path and then ultimately into the management side of it all but i think with a really strong financial background to me was was critical and, mm. and is a very useful skill across any business um and the business development sales you know takes you to wherever you really want to go so it's a really good combination um uh and then the management um you know is again fantastic experience and and it can vary uh, anywhere from you know small business to, to big business but you know everywhere in life we have to learn to work with our team members and and help bring those together as well as working with the you know with the customers and all the other things that go with it so um but that but I, I don't recall ever really wanting to be an accountant and probably going back to your original question was no my father was a doctor my mother was a, a physiotherapist but she ended up mainly running my father's practice mm. and um I think that probably, I, you know, if anything, I get my more business side from her, but she's mm. not trained. She just sort of had that that sort of logical mindset. Um, but yeah, no, none, none of uh, dad's kids, mum and dad's kids, uh, none of us ever went into the medical side of things. Mm. Um, and all of us are self-employed entrepreneurs running our own businesses, which <laughs> uh, my dad's dead now, but mum Mm. Never work out how on earth. <laughs> my children actually worked anywhere from two of us own breweries, um, one owned an ad agency, and another one um, runs our own PR operations. So, um, you know, it's all, it's very, it's very interesting how it's all turned out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, going from professional services, accounting to an internal sort of finance CFO role is a very well trod path. But going from sort of finance and CFO desk to like sales, business development. Um, and service delivery is a much less common path. Not many CFOs become business development managers. Were you always a more extroverted sales-driven CFO or, you know, like how did you make that leap? Did some people, you know, was everyone on board because you had the aptitude or the willingness or was it a bit of a, uh, quite a surprising move for people when you go from the, the CFO role to like sales, business development, service delivery? I think um, so... What happened within Telstra was the finance role that led to being on the deal team. So mm -hmm. actually negotiating the terms of the transaction and, you know, assessing bid price and, and seeing whether that's there, developing base cases, all these sort of scenarios that you needed the financial side for. Then that led to the negotiation skill set because, um, you know, I'd sit at the table arguing with IBM and, mm. you know, they'd try and make some <laughs> point that I didn't necessarily agree with. Mm. Um, and so you'd have that negotiation around it all. Um and then when I went back, joined IBM, I, I actually got the opportunity to run one of their um, IT service delivery units to actually be responsible for delivering at that stage. It was Telstra's finance and HR systems. And I very quickly realized I was way out of my depth from both a management perspective <laughs> and from a, an ability to understand uh, not technology, the understand the technology side. <laughs> but I really understood the, um, 
the mechanics of an outsource and how it worked and how it worked in favor of the customer and how it worked in favor mm-hmm. for IBM um, and the benefits that went with it, um, particularly around the service side of things and the ability to leverage um, capability. Um, and I think that then allowed me to sort of move into selling those those opportunities because you're able to sort of not only quantify um, the the transaction, but you know you might bring in the service delivery guys to convince the customer that the techno- the technical skill sets within the organisation, and that the process improvement and all those well drawn um, paths are, are there and developed not by Richard but by you know mm. many more skilled people within their business. But the actual mechanics of a, of a business, and obviously with those outsourcing deals, you're often dealing with the procurement people that understand mm-hmm. the commercials. Mm-hmm. more so than the the technical outcome. Um, and they're often told that, you know, go and investigate a, an outsource arrangement. And um, to do that, it's a it's a commercial transaction. One, once they believe that, you, once you've had the ability to convince them that you can do the service delivery component, um, then the rest of it becomes a, a commercial transaction around how does it benefit everybody. Um, and, and so that kind of just led to mm. those discussions. And then it was about then identifying and working with, other customers to get them to think about outsourcing as an as a an option um, to help them as they were hitting growing pains and did they really need to add another you know 20, 30 professionals into their organization or would they be better off looking at at somebody who's got that operation ready to go and can actually leverage an existing team. Um, it just sort of seemed like a logical step through. I always said I um, outsourcing um, you know, was effectively a two-year sales cycle. Um, you know, it was a long, mm. long, long sales cycle. And at the end of it all, you could be told you were second. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's pretty devastating when you've done very long hours to get to that position. Um, so when I, we moved and bought um, uh, the snooze businesses, um, you know, that that was what I called a 40-minute 40, 40 sales cycle. <laughs> so, you know, you, you still had, it wasn't just taking an order. So it was, mm. you had to take the customer through and explain the product. So that, that was sort of the thing I liked about it, but you pretty much knew within 40 minutes, whether you had a transaction or not. And, and what was the, the, um, the, so the biggest change, you're the very tippy top of the corporate world, the Ernst and Youngs, the IBMs, the Telstra's, you know, the sort of the, some of the biggest companies in Australia and in the world. And you've gone to a franchisee at Captain Snooze, like you said, a two-year sales cycle to a, you know, 30 to 60-minute sales cycle, um, you know, B2B, B2C. Um, what was that journey like? Was there a lot of culture shock being a, both a franchisee and a small business and consumer-facing? Was it a refreshing change? What, what was that uh, transition like? Um, it probably wasn't a culture shock, shock um, because because ultimately people that you work with in the big corporate world are exactly the same people that walk in the door looking mm. for a bed. Um, mm. And mm. generally the teams you're working with, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, professional, you know, you know, or, or, you know, hardworking people. I mean, I probably, the biggest thing for me was actually how hard my team that, I, that were getting paid a fraction of the salaries people were getting paid in the corporate world, how much they cared Mm. about my business and how much they cared about doing a good job so they had a paycheck the next day, mm. whereas I think in the corporate world you get a bit complacent about it all, um, whereas these people, um, you know, my staff would, would go bend over backwards and, and, you know, we're getting really paid uh, a quarter of what somebody in the corporate world I'd been mm. used to dealing with were on. And, and that sort of really surprised me, I'm, I'm, you know, I must admit, and, and 
pleasantly surprised me. Mm. It was fantastic to actually see that sort of um, concern and interest and, and um, you know, desire for the business to improve. Um, but then the other franchisees, you know, many of them were very, very successful business mm. people, um, you know, some with multi-store operations. Um, and whilst, you know, their turnover may have been, you know, five or $10 million, um, it was their business. They were very concerned. They drove the, you know, to make sure that they got the, um, the, the financial result that the mm. inventory levels they were managing were correct, that the supply of the new product coming through was was what they perceived the market needed, all those sort of stuff. So actually, you know, it's fantastic and refreshing to see that they all came from different walks of life. Mm. Life, I don't think, I don't think any of the franchisees came from a big, really big corporate background. Mm. Um, but um, you know, we're just entrepreneurial focused on it all and, and that's what i found refreshing so i didn't i didn't find it too much of a culture shock i probably you know the the being on my feet a bit more and, mm-hmm. and throwing a mattress over <laughs> my shoulder and um you know working on a saturday or a sunday um took a little bit of getting used to um but you know when it's your baby and you've invested mm. a lot of money into it you you sort of very quickly want to be there and actually it was the team telling me to go away because you can't be effective if you're mm. here seven days a week um <laughs> And that kind of resonated really very quickly for me. So I probably did, I don't know, maybe a month of seven days a week and then thought, this is ridiculous. This is not going to be a sustainable situation. And, and so we then um, very quickly went back to sort of um, five-day weeks spread over uh, sort of a 10-day fortnight, really. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, trusted the team to look after the business, which they were more than capable of doing. Yeah, and so you mentioned you realised you were celiac. Um, your brother was running a, a brewery. Um, we were in the US, sort of learning the trade, experiencing it, um, and, and then you decided to start uh, Two Bays. And, and what was that first process like? Was it harder than you thought? Did your brother give you a lot of the inside tips and tricks? Was it, um, you know, unexpected challenges? How was that first sort of 12 months once you made the decision and the commitment to start the company? Yeah. So we, we came back in, in February 2017 and... Um, we really secured the investors uh, by Christmas 2018, 2017, sorry. Um, so probably in that 10-month period, I reckon I procrastinated for four of it, um, <laughs> doing a little bit of, re- you know, I was doing still doing a bit of consulting work, but, you know, just did doing more research. How big is the gluten-free market? Is gluten-free a fad or is it, you know, um, you know, uh, an ongoing lifestyle thing? How big is the celiac market? How big is the you know, the other side of things, um, who are the competitors, what information could I find out about them? Um, how, how do you make beer? Um, you know, I had to look up, how do you make beer? I had no idea. Um, and, um, you know, sort of develop that. How, how would we brand it? Um, what, what size brewery do we need? How much is a brewery? brewery going to cost me mm. um all, all these great i had no idea you know and, and there weren't too many places you could go and you, and say what size brewery should i start with <laughs> um so you at some point you've got to just bite the bullet and go mm. okay i'll 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 put up this into my 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 budget and um this size brewery and then we'll go off and um you know see how we go with it um certainly um my brother was was very useful particularly he's got a couple of partners that are uh uh, very good around the financial side of how the brewery mm-hmm. operations work. So I was able to sort of test um, my assumptions around cost structures and things mm-hmm. like that. So that that was, you know, extremely useful. Um, and over time, you know, we continue to exchange stuff, you know, where I was just talking to them again yesterday as we're looking at, at different things that will interest both of us, but we're not a competing 
um, beer in the marketplace. So, mm -hmm. you know, they, they continue to help me out. And I think now I've been in the game a bit that I can actually help them out as well in return. So that's good. Um, and so what were the investors? Were you essentially like shopping around a PowerPoint deck with an idea, a concept, market research, when you didn't have the, the track record in, in consumer packaged goods necessarily or um, startups or beverages? What were they investing in? Just the vision, the mission, the product, the, the distribution network, or, or what were they sort of investing in in, in those early stages? I, I think, um, yeah, I, I had nothing. I remember I went to... Um... Uh, somebody introduced me to one of the PwC guys and he, and he, you know, fantastic help, really, really great. Um, but he said, I think what you best do is go and get a beer made somewhere mm -hmm. so you can show investors because no, nobody's going to invest without a product to taste. Mm. Um, and I said, well, the problem is you can't brew a gluten-free beer on somebody else's brew house mm. because, and I don't have a brewer to tell me what recipe to make anyway. Mm. So, um, and, and, and ultimately, I, I was introduced to um, a, a gentleman who um, was, was a great mentor and, and kind of said, hey, I'll introduce you to somebody who likes the craft beer industry, has got a couple of investments in there already. And um, we walked in with a PowerPoint deck, you know, mm -hmm. done a pretty professional one. We'd had a bit of branding up there so mm -hmm. that people, mm -hmm. they had a view of where the brand would sit um, and literally was... A 40-minute discussion, 20 minutes was these two people talking about the footy because they both supported the same <laughs> football team. And then the conversation, as I recall, it went kind of along the lines of how much are you going to put in? All right, well, I'll you take half and I'll take half of the raise that we were asking for. Mm -hmm. And it was done. And I went, I walked out of that. It was, it was on it was on Collins Street. And I walked out and um, I think my wife was in the car and we went straight straight to a pub in North Melbourne and, and um, <laughs> Luckily, they had a gluten-free beer available, and I said it can't be this easy. Um, and what, the, and, what, and did, what did they in see the end, in, in that opportunity that made them pull the trigger so quickly? It was just trust the recommendation? It was it just the opportunity. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they didn't know, the market. Yeah, it, it's interesting because they didn't know me from really from a bar of soap. Apart from, I think you know they you know I think all investors back. Um, I think I can't remember. I read something this week. You know, they they back the person, not the product. Mm. Um, the jockey, so, not the horse, because I know the jockey the jo could get a different sorry, horse. That's, yeah, that's that's exactly what he said. Actually, <laughs> we back. Yeah, I forget who it was this week, but you know, I backed the jockey, not the horse. And mm. I think um, so when they they understood the beer industry, so they understood what was going on in the craft space. They saw that gluten free was a, was a niche within that space that wasn't highly competitive. Um, I was able to show them that the market potential we thought was quite significant if we could make the consumer aware of the availability of, of a gluten-free mm -hmm, beer and, mm -hmm. and also a good quality one because again back back in those days you know all gluten-free products uh, they're much better today uh, than they were when i when i got diagnosed in 2015 but the mm. quality of gluten-free had a pretty awful stigma about it um and it would cost more had, and it would be harder to find right so it was sort yeah, of a yeah. triple negative um, yeah, so so we had a great break. We'd also negotiated the exclusive rights to these uh, malts. So you need mm -hmm. malt to, to brew beer, and nobody malted gluten-free grains in Australia. Mm. Um, so as part of my US trip, I'd met the malt houses over there um, and negotiated the exclusive distribution for those malts or use of those malts in Australia. Mm. So that gave us uh, exclusivity about supply so that nobody mm -hmm. could easily brew um, a similar beer. Um 
with those ingredients. We sold those ingredients to other breweries and to home brewers, um, mm. but um, you know that's done through us. They can't go directly to the US mm. and, and buy them. Um, and so that gave us all um, confidence around supply and uniqueness of product. Mm-hmm. Um, branding was good. I think they they liked the vision that I was outlaying for them. Um, of course, like everything, it turns out to be fairly optimistic, but <laughs> they want putting a pessimistic deck in front of investors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, you know, the transaction w- was done straight away. So you immediately think, did I ask enough? Should I have asked for <laughs> valuation? But you know, I, I thought at the time I was very happy with the valuation that mm. we put on, on on what was basically a 15 pages of paper. And, and then how was the actual paper. reality? Like, yeah, so you got the capital, which often many people say is the hardest part. You've kind of you got that almost a bit more easily than you, way more easily than you expected. But then you've, and you've got the license agreement, the exclusive distribution. But then what was the reality of finding space, product, uh, branding, packaging, getting distribution or into pubs and, and uh, restaurants? What was that sort of in the early days? How was that process? So, so I think the hardest thing to start with was actually having a recipe. So mm-hmm. A, I needed a brewer and and luckily a local brewer down here uh, had left another brewery and was happy to do some consulting work for me to start with, mm-hmm. um, to, to start to play around with these grains because, you know, without a without a brewer, a brewer is like a, a chef, you know, without a chef mm. and, a, and a, <laughs> the guy's creating all this wonderful product, mm. you know, you can have whatever brand you like, but it's useless. Um <laughs> And so, you know, finding the, finding the location was relatively mm-hmm. easy. Um, we're just in the Dramana industrial mm-hmm. state with lots mm-hmm. of now other artisan producers as well. Um, but at the time, I remember actually looking at this particular location and deciding it wasn't for us. Um, and then we went back and looked at it again and thought, you know, actually we can make this, this work. So we have two factories side by side and we punched a hole, a couple of holes, big holes through the wall so we can, you know, make it into an open area which of course then suddenly changes the whole fire rating of building so i learned a few things along the way <laughs> part of the planning process um but um you know creating that that beer was the challenge we probably threw out 15 16 different mm-hmm, brews before mm-hmm. we got to something that was remotely in line with what we we wanted to to offer to our customers um and then from you know there you're, you're in the meantime you're sort of starting to build awareness that you're coming without mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had to promise too much. You know, I'd, I'd have um, my wife saying, "You can't go start marketing it yet." And I said, "Well, we can't sell this product," and then suddenly nobody's heard of us either. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and and um, you know what we we ended up doing was there's a, there was a couple of um, uh, CLAC Australia whole gluten free mm-hmm. expos around the country. Mm-hmm. So in in um, September of 2018, so we started brewing in March 2018 mm-hmm. um, with a little pilot system while our big system was being um, made. Mm-hmm. Um, and in September 2018, we took two different varieties of our paler, which you can see behind me. Obviously, mm-hmm. your customer, the listeners can't. Um, <laughs> and um, took them to the expo. And mm. we had people queuing up from 9 o'clock. At, uh, it opened at 9 o'clock and 9.01, we were serving our first beer to people. They were so excited to have another beer offer in the in the, in the gluten-free space. Because what um, was everything else? Breads, pastas, sweets, like all foods uh, and bakeries and pastries, no drinks really or no um one yeah. other one other brewery that had been that had been around for a long time. Um but you know we were new and mm. and and different in in that we're heading much down much more down a craft pathway mm-hmm. than than the the existing brewery. 
uh, and we were using different ingredients and and um so you know i i think we drove home that night and and um yeah i shed a tear because you know it was just the feedback was so positive mm. and we knew then that we were a onto something um with you know the whole concept but also mm-hmm. onto something with the quality of our beer and where that was sitting so um and and that then mothballed from from uh what was september 18 to the first cans came out on the 20th of december and um we released them online so we've got a fairly strong online business and mm-hmm. we can talk mm-hmm. about that you know, coming up but um the only avenue we had to market it and i think at the time uh, no, no, I did have a, a, a liquor license that allowed me to wholesale, but effectively the only, the liquor license are the only way to get to market that time of year was online. So mm. we've built up a bit of a database um, of people ready to, you know, try our product. Um, we launched it straight away and um, it was our court Christmas party where we live that night and my phone just pings. Every time there's an order comes through, <laughs> it would ping, 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 yeah. ping, ping. And it was unbelievable. And um, I think... I don't know, we sold 120 cartons or something in, in you know, uh, probably six or seven hours and we thought we'd made it, um, you know. And were you picked up it. by online celiac gluten-free communities? Was it just, again, people heard the buzz, people Google it and you were the only thing that really shows up or, or what was what drove uh, all that no, online traffic in the early days? It, it was really just starting to, yeah, we started to sort of tease tease out stuff and just mm-hmm. uh, email marketing. So, um we're, we're working with a, with a marketing guy um, from a strategy perspective, and um, you know it was it was very clear that um, in this world your your email database is the only one you can guarantee is going to see something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may not open it, but they're going to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Facebook and other things, you can put ads out there all you like, um, and mm-hmm. we would put ads out onto Facebook to say, you know, sign up to our database mm-hmm. so you can mm-hmm. hear about when we're first ready. And that was the way we got people in from a hook perspective, but it was the email database that we sent it out and that was the one that returned the, the revenue straight away. And, and that just continues today. Whenever we bring out a new product, we email it out and it just goes goes um, nuts. But um, it, it was just through social media was our avenue to create awareness that we were coming. Mm-hmm. And then email was the thing that um, sort of drove the, the first lot of sales. Um, and then I think I did my first wholesale transaction which was to my brother's breweries mm-hmm. um uh around about the 23rd of december and you know um we always look at how our business i always look at how our business performs every financial year obviously but also <laughs> um i also like to take a bit of a snapshot at the end of a calendar year and just sort of say all right how do we do and this mm-hmm. year i was looking at december this year compared to where we were december 2018 and just seeing mm-hmm. how our whole business has you know changed change so much i think we probably did you know Two thousand bucks or something of wholesale in in that you know short period of time, but it was it was um, still pretty exciting to know that um, you know somebody had taken out beers and wanted to give it to their customers, and, and it wasn't just my brother; it was actually his business partners mm-hmm, that said mm-hmm. that they wanted to do that for their gluten free customers, and that, and mm-hmm. that was kind of the thing that you know again we knew we were onto something. Um, very early two thousand and nineteen, we put it um, we put our parallel in front of Dan Murphy's. Um, mm-hmm. And they've uh, quickly grabbed that up too for their premium stores at the time. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so, um, which was fantastic. Except for uh, I remember they were, they were asking me to sign the agreement, and I was in the states at a at a, at a brewers conference, and um, we were having quite a lot of difficulties with our new big big brew house, and I wasn't mm-hmm. sure that we could actually do it all. And I kind of making this excuse: I'm in America. Can I delay, you know, sending it <laughs> till I come back? Thinking. 
we've got to solve these problems. Um, and mm. they kind of said no. So I kind of signed <laughs> and then started crossing my fingers and toes. Um, and, um, you know, so it was fantastic that that um, Dan Murphy's picked us up across, I think at the time it was about 40-odd um, stores um, in New South Wales and, and Victoria. And they were, they were great, you know. I mean, um, there's a lot of people that sort of the bash the big um, uh, retail chains. And I think... Um, I think the big retail chains like to beat up on the big retail and the big uh, manufacturers that, you know, consumer products that sell to them. Mm. But I've, I've certainly found within the liquor side of, of um, both the big retailers and, and Metcash as well. So probably mm. all three of the big um, retail avenues that they, they show a lot of respect, I think for the small business and, you know, the role that we can play in their shelves, but, but also um, the fact that we're, we are small and, um, you know, there's only certain things we can do, and um, you know, we we found that great. So now we move from Dan Murphy's from what was 40 odd stores with Pale Ale to 256 to every store they've got nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we're trying to convince them to take more of our products. You know, they've taken our lager and our XPA and IPA into some select stores, and now we'd like them to, um, you know, see if they can take some of those national as well. Um, and was that your early strategy, like direct-to-consumer, test it, prove it, control it, and then um, through like a Dan Murphy's and then eventually through, you know, bars and other uh, or other brewers? Was that the early, from the start, you thought eventually we want to be essentially, you know, is in as many places as you can, right? Or did you, you never had any philosophy about, I always want to be direct or I don't want to do any direct, I just want to be, you know, through the distributors? Or how did you think about that as a... As a um, Beverage company. Yeah, I, I, I think we, we always thought that direct, uh, sorry, we always thought that online um, would be a strong channel for us because of the uniqueness of the product and the uniqueness mm. of the customer set. Um, and the fact that there was, you know, quite a lot of reluctance within bottle shops and venues to um, probably, I don't know if it's a reluctance, maybe a lack of awareness because nobody's actually selling into those venues to let them know there was even a gluten free beer available. Mm. So, if if the venues had it or the bottle shops had it is because they'd sort of stumbled across it mm. um, in wholesale portals or whatever it might be. Um, so, but for us, we, we definitely always plan to have three um, revenue streams, which is our direct channel, our hospitality business and our wholesale business. We absolutely expect our wholesale business to be by far the vast majority. Mm. Um, you know, we are, we're very much set up to be unlike many craft breweries that are, uh, local or even hyper-local, um, you know, so some will be state-based, largely mm-hmm. state-based, and some mm-hmm. might even just try and be in a couple of suburbs. Um, we always set up two base to be a national brand um, and a national brewery because we know gluten-free people are everywhere and mm. people like me, you know, the good thing is I'm, I'm the perfect consumer for our product. And, and mm. so I kind of say, well, I could be, you know, I know there's people like me in Queensland and there's people mm. like me in Perth mm. and that's proven to be the case. So now, you know, three years in, Two years of which COVID's um, not not wrecked havoc on our business because we've been very lucky through the process um, and people have continued to mm. um, partake in a in a beer at the end of a day. But mm. um, that that you know we're now um, I think forty percent of our business is in Victoria and sixty percent is now around the country. Mm. Um, and we could talk a bit about how we build our distribution channel up. But I'm, but again, the first time I remember somebody asked me in I don't know Sydney a venue in Sydney said can we get your beer? And, and I didn't know how to get it out of Dramana, let alone mm. to Sydney, um, <laughs> you know, in, in any wholesale capacity. Mm. So, you know, we had to spend a whole lot of time. I'd spent a whole lot of time working out and that's where 
my brother's brewery and, and other breweries, you know, it's a really collegiate industry. And, and mm. you know, I'd say, who do, you, who do you deal with in Sydney? Which, mm. which transport companies and cold storage companies in Brisbane? Mm. And who do you use to ship stuff between, um, you know, Victoria and WA? And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so ultimately, I, I, there's, there's, you know, two or three of the breweries that I really trust that they, they do great jobs. They're very commercial. Mm-hmm. And so I figure that they've done quite a bit of research on, um, you know, pricing and, you know, who's the best service levels and things and ended up just sort of copying um, their, their supply chain. Um, and and now we have our beer cold stored in um, every capital city bar, sorry, every state and capital city bar uh, the territory. Um, and, and so, yeah, you've got this rapid growth, 160% last financial year, doing two and a half million a year in revenue, being one of the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia, like you said, going national um, very quickly um, in just a couple of years. What were some of those growing pains? You mentioned like the Dan Murphy sort of worked out. What were some of the others scaling up? You know, it's a physical product. It's not bits and bytes in an app store on a screen. It's a physical product that has to be physically moved and made and shipped and, you know, I guess almost sort of manufactured in one sense of the word. So what was that rapid yep. sort of growth and distribution like, both the good yeah, and the I bad? Mean- yeah, uh, I mean, ultimately, we are we we are classified as a manufacturing business. We just we manufacture a food product mm. uh, under the code. It just happens to be beer. Um, you know, beer's got a shelf life. We choose to ship our beer chilled. It doesn't have to be, but we choose to do it that mm-hmm. way. Um, the growth for us, you know, it's been so. We're now in seventeen hundred odd locations around the country. We're national with Dan mm-hmm. Murphy's. We're national with Grilled. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we've got some other exciting, we, we hope projects that, um, can fall our way, you know, this year to help do it all. The, the thing is, it's, it's a kind of incremental growth. Mm-hmm. So once you've solved how you move a single carton of beer from, uh, Melbourne to Sydney, then moving a pallet of beer is no different, mm-hmm. um, and in fact, the pallet beer is much easier because at the start, you know, moving small volumes is really critical. So we dealt with a 3PL partner in mm-hmm. Melbourne um, probably for six months with, you know, mm-hmm. next to nothing moving. Um, and it just takes you to build up time, but you've actually set the infrastructure. So I always said the first year for me was to set up a national infrastructure so mm-hmm. that we had um, both a supply chain structure sorted, who was going to ship the product across the Nullarbor, which 3PL partner was going to distribute it for us. Um, uh, and that was really the first 12 months. And then and then we also try to put a few sales engines in at some of those locations. But generally, I would sell myself out. You know, all our Perth customers came through me. I went over to Perth two or three mm. times, knocked on some doors, got us into a little bit of distribution. And really, it was kind of just seeding a market with, you know, maybe five or 10 venues that were starting to carry us. And, we'd, you know, we'd have a pallet of beer, um, and we, we would generally only have one or two SKUs. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, simple, we'd send a pallet of beer over with two SKUs and we'd seed into those venues. Um, and then did the same in Brisbane, did the same in Sydney, Canberra, um, Adelaide. Um, so, so, so talk then, me through that. So you're in Perth, you knock on a pub, you know, the door of a pub, you're the owner, you got credibility, you got a physical product to sample. But, you know, what were the reactions? Would people say, you know, this is fantastic? I get asked about all this all the time. Was it who, who would want this? Like, was it mixed? Did people get it? Did they not get it? What was the feedback when you were brand new in a brand new sort of market trying to get yeah. um, distributed there? It, it was. Um, it's kind of interesting. So I always say to, to my sales guys, you know, you, you walk in with two cans of beer in your hand 
and you can see the venue owner or the bottle shop in particular, they'll, you know, their face will just blank and they'll go, here comes another bloody sales rep trying to sell me uh, another craft beer that I don't need. Yeah, um, but from a place I've saying, never heard of with that. <laughs> yeah, in a, in a faraway state. Um, but as soon as you go in there and say, um, would you be interested in looking at our gluten-free beer, they light up because mm. they never, in many cases, they wouldn't have seen a rep come and talk mm. about gluten-free beer because the, our competitors don't have mm. um, on the ground arms and legs um, really doing doing what we do. Um, and so they they would, you know, light up. They, they understood. I, it blows me away about how many will say to me, we get asked for this all the time now, mm. um, you know, what all the time means. You know, they might have been asked a few times for mm. it. But mm. basically people are starting to ask for gluten-free beer more and more at, at venues and the bottle shops. And so they were starting to get a demand coming in from consumer. Um, and and we would walk in with a with a product and our product's about 30% more expensive than our competitor's product. Mm-hmm. Um, we think it's at least 30% better in, in, mm-hmm. in quality and, and experience. But um, so it's not a cheap product. It's very, and, it, and it's expensive like all gluten-free products compared to the non-gluten-free world. So, I mean, our ingredients are six to seven times the price of barley in beer. Mm. Um, you know, so we start with a very expensive malt grain. Um, so to end up with a finished product that's, you know, 30% more expensive than a, than a comparable um, craft beer, it's still a big gap, you know. So the retailers mm. are taking and going, well, I'm gonna to have to retail this at whatever. Mm. Um, and you know, being uncertain about whether they could do that, whether a customer would buy it and we'd, you know, I'd say, listen, as a gluten-free person, I'm I'm used to paying three times as much for my loaf mm. of bread. Mm. So, so you might not be, but don't don't expect, you know, the gluten-free consumer um has and to not be as price good. sensitive, yeah, as, as the average not, not uh, mainstream so, person. You know, we've tested, yeah, we've tested price elasticity on our product on a number of occasions and doesn't really change particularly. It's it's if a customer likes our beer, they will they will buy our beer at the same rate, whether it's on sale or or, or not on sale. But 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 uh, Derek, the, the thing was, yeah, custom, mm. these venues were very receptive. So we very quickly got to 500 locations. Mm. Um, and then that seemed to very quickly get to a thousand and COVID sort of you know, slowed the rate a bit because we haven't been able to out to be out knocking on mm. doors. Mm. Um, but what we do see then is that the volume per existing customer is increasing. So as our marketing is and advertising mm-hmm. is working to create brand awareness, um, you know, that's now drawing more product off shelf off the existing um, retailers, which is really important for us as well, is to make sure that not only goes on the shelf, but it's got to earn its spot and, and move off the shelf. So you know, we watch those metrics mm. store by store, stockist by stockist uh, very closely. And it's interesting because I think, again, five to 10 years ago on a menu, you you might see a V for vegetarian, but you'd never see, you know, a GF for gluten-free, right? In the last sort of three to five years, you've really caught that wave where, like you said, a pub might have had to put all the dietary information on their food menu, but they've never looked at their taps or their fridge and said, well, what are our drinks, you know, offering, Right. Um, yeah. And so gluten-free food, like when you're at the conference, right, it was almost all sort of food. What, why do you think the gluten-free beers and, and um, took so long? Is it the product and, and it's just the difficulty in making it um, or, or the beers just lag behind the, the pastries and the, the sort of wheat-based product substitutes? I think um, generally um, venues, they, they realise obviously that they need the food offer and so, um, you know, they, they might allocate you know, somewhere between 30 and 100% of their of their menu to gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they recognise the consumers coming in the door. They recognise that you can make really good quality 
food and the and the food and the ingredients for gluten-free product has has improved dramatically. But for some reason, they didn't think about um, the beverage cider. And I think the assumption was always, well, I can give the gluten-free person the cider or the wine mm. um, and or, or the spirits. And I'm, mm. you know, and so our job is to say, you know what? We've got thousands of people on our database that just mm. want a beer. Mm. So why why do you think a gluten-free person is a whole lot different to everybody <laughs> else that walks into your venue? And if mm. you've got, you know, 20 beer taps um, and if, 10 to 25% of the population are having to or choosing to avoid gluten, why wouldn't you allocate one of those taps to a gluten-free beer like you allocate one to a cider? Um, Because we get so many comments from people saying, I'm sick and tired of being told I've got to have a glass of cider Mm. Um, when I'm at the pub with my mates. You know, I just want Mm. to drink a beer and kind of be like everybody else and I enjoy the flavour and I don't like cider particularly or whatever it might be. Mm. Mm. it's It's just taken them a while to think that through and think that actually maybe we should be doing that with with beer as well um and so that usually the avenue for us is we come in through packaged product in the fridge because it's easy to get a fridge spot mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you know we, we don't have to compete with any tap deals they've done with cub or, mm-hmm, or lion mm-hmm. or, or anybody else um and it can get in there and once it's in there then our job is then to convince them that um you know the sell-through rate if they actually put it onto the tap would be you know significantly higher because people you know tap taps outsell fridge by you know a factor of I don't know twenty or thirty or forty um, anyway at venues. Um, but our beer is actually a beer that anybody can drink. Um, yeah. You know, unless you're unless you're allergic to yeast, which <laughs> a few people are. Our beers are vegan. Our beers are gluten free, um, and our beers can be drunk by every other barley beer drinker. And in fact, we got lots of people. Um, that drink our beer that are not gluten free. They just like the flavor profile of it. So, and did it get easier? Like, you know, the first door you knock on in Perth, and the first uh, fridge space you get. But when you say, "Hey, these other twenty five venues in Perth have, have our beer, and they're selling this volume," and when you can show that, does it get easier and easier to then get the next fifty or so venues in that area? Yeah, I think um, we now have we've now engaged a, a standalone distributor for for WA. So mm-hmm. their job, you know, they go to their existing client base and 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 convince them they have it all. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think what's happening though is we we're now doing a great job at our marketing side, which we really invest heavily into um, to drive people to actually walk into a bottle shop or a venue and say, "Do you have a two base? Mm-hmm. Not just do you have a beer or a gluten free mm-hmm. beer? You do have a two base." And when that happens, you know, the venue just has to think differently. Mm, mm. Um, and so that's kind of our, our focus is, um, uh, you know, yes, yes, it is easier. Certainly, you know, it's amazing. You find that uh, how the bottle shops look and follow each other and they must um, uh, mystery shop their competitors mm. in their strip, <laughs> I think, because as soon as you get into one, um, very soon after, you're usually getting another one down the street asking yeah. you, can they range it as well? Because mm. um, they don't like to be copying each other, mm. but also that, they recognize that, you know, you don't want that customer to walk out the door if they want a gluten-free beer and you don't have it and the guy down the road does, um, then, you know, you've lost that customer and, you know, they're often will buy something else while they're there, not just the beer. So, mm. um, so, so we do find that and, and that's kind of interesting to see how that, that works and, and, um, how certain suburbs work particularly well compared to others and, and different markets like that. Um, but yeah, at the you know the 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 best thing is when I get an email saying, "Hey, somebody's told me yours is the best gluten free beer in town. I'd like to put it on tap." Mm. You know, and we get those, um, you know, 
more and more mm. increasingly you know, more regularly. So mm. um, that's kind of the power of what we're trying to do from a marketing perspective is is to create that consumer demand and, and actually demanding a two base beer, not just a beer. Yeah, and so zooming out a bit from from two bays and from uh, your industry, what what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? Like I said, you've got uh, neighbouring tenants that are in various sort of craft, uh, food and beverage things. I'm sure you're, you're going to the US, you're seeing different companies, you're going to, to trade shows. You know, what, what do you think Australian entrepreneurs, business owners are doing well and where are they um, leaving room um, on the table for improvement? Yeah, I, I mean, I find if I say I always read the business part of the newspaper, I, I used to read the sport when I was younger <laughs> and now I kind of don't, don't bother. I skim over that and I always read the business components because I'm fascinated with what's going on in, in the business world across all industries. Um, certainly, you know, I have a, a much better understanding and view around what the craft beer industry is is doing and what sort of things are likely to happen. And, and I find that, you know, fascinating. But, um, you know, some of the stuff that, these afterpay guys and, uh, you know, buy now, pay laters and, mm-hmm. and some of these entrepreneurs around Canva and the ideas that the people have that are so scalable is just mm. mind blowing, you know, to, to, I think there was one today, Milkman or something, you know, it, it commenced four months ago and today it raised 75 million bucks mm. and a series A fundraiser. And you kind of go, how does that happen? I mean, it's, it's barely, couldn't be more than about five people on push bikes at the mm. moment, but they've tapped into um, you know that invested demand, and there's and there's plenty of money out there. You know, idle money that needs mm. a, a home. Um, having said that, it's still hard to get it into you into your bank account as a, as an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, but I just think the scale that that the, that I consider the next generation mm-hmm. of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in Australia are thinking. You know, we we I still think of you know product and and um, you know I was I always had this desire to be able to walk into somewhere and see my brand. Mm. Somewhere in there, and it just happens to be to beer, but that was kind mm. of, you know, the the maybe the e- the ego side of it all. Um, whereas I think, you know, but that that limits you to you know geographical footprints and things like that. Whereas the the next generation that are coming through are thinking global. Mm. They're thinking, what can we scale to, you know, millions of people, not just um, thousands of people. Mm. And I just think that's incredible. And um, you know, I think it's, it's it's fantastic. I think it's great to see. Um, some of the, you know, I had some, did some work with the VC funds in, in, um, more in the, in the, um, renewable and, and, um, energy side of the environmental mm-hmm. side of things, but some of the VC funds that are now backing these, these, um, uh, IT, you know, software and a service mm-hmm. type businesses, are um, great because they're helping to incubate the industry so much, mm. um, and I kind of always come across these new businesses and go, where did that one come from? And, you know, mm. this one does this, this one does that. Mm. And this incubator has now picked up 10 new funds, you know, and, and we mm. see it in our game now because we use deployable mm-hmm. for QR mm. codes. We use all these things that people, that we're now adding onto our um, Shopify websites and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But it, these are great ideas that people are uh, creating businesses that can scale well beyond any geographical boundary. And I think that's that's bloody incredible mm. yeah, I, had, so- I had the thought to be able to you know come up with that idea but but i mean i'm much happier drinking 
uh, a beer and, and leave that up to to the next generation. Yeah. So. Well, well, speaking of, of sort of young people, you know, what advice would you give your sort of 18 to 20 year old self? You know, you're interested in business, you know, maybe the account, big accounting firms are looking at you or you just, you know, you, you, your parents are sort of maybe indirectly involved in business. What would you have told you, uh, yourself or another, someone who's 18 or 21 right now? Maybe they're starting uni, finishing uni, they're not sure exactly what they want to do, where they want to go, but they they like hearing about these great stories and these young people like Afterpay and, and other companies. What would you say to them knowing what you know now? I, I think to, to me is, um, you know, I would just do something because what you do um, won't be what you'll end up doing. Mm. So, you know, I started doing accounting, but I don't do any accounting anymore, but I do know how to read a P&L and a balance mm. sheet. Um, and I sure as hell know how to check my bank account. Mm. Um, but, but I don't, um, that's not, what defines me any, anymore and, and you'll go through multiple industry changes you'll go through multiple careers mm. um and each one will be will be invaluable i think if if you develop and i'm sure many of your listeners are of that sort of entrepreneurial mindset um i think it's critical to have a really strong financial base mm. um it may not be your first degree you know i think it's really useful to have um you know a, a technical degree or a degree around whatever discipline you're, you're really interested in. But I think if you want to be an entrepreneur, I think having that commercial um, uh, financial experience or, or, or understanding is, is mm. absolutely critical. And that doesn't mean you have to do necessarily a degree in it, but certainly mm. I would be doing some study around that. Um, and, and, you know, that way you can understand because, you know, I, I deal with, Small business guys have got no idea how to read mm. their PL. They don't even know whether they're making money on every bit of product they're selling. So they, yeah, cash flow uh, forecast blows up a lot of small uh, businesses and um, taxes, all those uh, sort of things. And, and, and that's, you know, um, incredible to me that they can actually be doing really interesting. Mm. What, what, you know, I love their product. I love their product innovation. And they might be a design centric person, but they don't understand the commercials of, of their business and, and therefore don't really understand whether where the money's coming from and is it sustainable and mm. where's it going to come from in the future so so i would recommend that but but i you know i um we we have a uh, a young fella that's been running our tap room down here he's mm -hmm. just finished uni got an internship and he was asking me should i take a job with this company it's probably not my number one brand that company that i'd like to mm -hmm. work for mm -hmm. in, in that particular sector i like the sector and i said if they offer you a job grab it Mm. because because you'll learn so much mm. particularly if you're young and starting out you'll you'll learn so much and and it's good whether it's the best brand in the world or the second best brand or the third best brand it doesn't matter you'll learn the same stuff mm. um and probably um if it's a challenging type brand rather mm. than the, the number one you know you'll actually find they've got a bit more fighting spirit and, and you'll probably learn a few more things than you might if you're the a bit complacent whether mm. you're the number one brand that thinks you're the best in the world so um, to me, it, it's about um, just doing something mm -hmm. um, and recognizing that your first job is not going to be mm. uh, where you'll end up in five years, let alone in, in 20 years. It'd be very unusual, particularly with this, um, you know, the, the more recent, I mean, even my generation, but mm. you know, certainly the more recent generation, you know, where you will be in five years won't even be in the same technical discipline, probably. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, um, but embrace that too. And the other thing, you know, everyone says, um, you know, take your time. You mm. know, don't, you don't have to be CEO in two years. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you're not, we're not all going to be um, Canva. We're not all going to mm. be um, uh, Afterpay. Um, in fact, you know, that's very, 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 very rare. 
Mm. Um, you know, but there are many other people that are highly successful that you don't actually realize how successful they are until you actually start to, you know, get the opportunity to work with them. Um, they fly under a radar, but, um, you know, mm. they, they do a good job. And, and you know, I, I'd say take your time in your first job because you'll milk it and learn as much as possible rather than going, oh, God, I haven't got this promotion in the first six months. I'm leaving <laughs> and going into promotion to the next mm. place. And mm. as it's... Uh, um, you know, same shit, different shovel. Mm, if I'm allowed mm. to say that on your podcast, no, no, that's but, you, okay. know, yeah. you know, you, you know, if you're changing industry just for the sake of changing industry um, for a pay rise, mm. you're actually staying in the same industry but a different company because mm. you're going to pay you a bit more money. Um, if the culture is good where you are and, and all you're worried about is is a little bit more money, just stick with it, mm. give it a little bit longer because you'll learn more. Um, mm. And as you get more experience there, you get you know a better understanding of how it works, and, and that's invaluable. So. Yeah, and I'm certain that's why I think telling that, like your story of big corporate, professional service, internal deals, being a franchisee, going back to corporate, starting something in your industry is so interesting. Um, again, working deals and then you know raising capital for yourself, all, all the wide range of possibilities that um, people can, can and do sort of experience now. And, yeah. and so just to finish off, what's the future plans for Two Bays? What does the next five to 10 years look like? Do you have international expansion plans, um, product-led expansions, anything out of um, beer or out of sort of beverage or, or what's the sort of high-level sort of future vision? I, th I think um, the way we look at the market is the 65,000 liquor licenses or something like that in Australia. Mm -hmm. And our view is that every single liquor license should offer a gluten-free beer. So mm -hmm. um, beer to me is not, it's not a great traveler, um, you know, over waters. The, the rules around gluten-free between the different parts of the world, um, you know, the US and, the, and Australia are fairly similar, but Europe's got very different rules mm -hmm. and, and any brewery could do gluten-free in, in Europe. Um, and beer, I wouldn't want to drink too many beers that are brewed in the States because by the time they get here, they're at least mm. three or four months old. And, and I think mm. it's the same the other way. So international um possibly in our local um geographic areas certainly you know there's a lot of expats and, and gluten-free communities through asia and, and mm -hmm. new zealand so you know we'll certainly have those um and i'd imagine that in the next five years we've got some very small distribution to that but it won't be a major part of what we do because i just think um you know a, a nirvana would be um you know if we can get one of those, every time you go to a venue that's got 20 beers on tap and one of them's gluten-free, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, that's plenty big enough for what we'll be able to to deliver um, just within Australia. Um, so so that's kind of it from a from a product perspective. Um, we've now got five beers in our in our core range. Mm -hmm. um, retailers and bottle shops, you know, at this stage are not willing, most of them are not willing to give five spots to, to your brand. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's it's about getting the right beer. And the reason we've got five is there's beers for certain markets that we think will go better in, say, Queensland than they might in Victoria or, or whatever it might be. Um, so we look at that. We did, um, in September last year, we released a second brand called GFB, which is a kind of a volume, lower margin play for us. Mm -hmm. um, um, and it's really there to bring um, a different consumer to our our brand and, mm -hmm. and our database and then mm -hmm. we can communicate to that consumer and then hopefully um you know for those that, that are interested in um craft beer we can educate them about craft beer in, and into the two base product um but 85 percent of people in australia still you know 
prefer to drink Great Northern, CUB, mm. Golden Draft, those styles of beer. And so our new brand, GFB, is, is earmarked towards those people. And that's mm. proved to be, you know, a massive success so far to the point that we weren't able to get really any wholesale distribution because we kept selling out online before we'd even mm. made it. Um, but we're now starting to get some wholesale distribution and, and, you know, this next 12 months we'll be getting out that. And I think that as a single skew product and some potential brand extension with that, that particular brand um, will open up, you know, a massive market to us and at a, at a price point that's, um, you know, more, more competitive and more, mm. um, a mass market sort of audience. Yeah. Yeah. We, we call it kind of the fridge filler in the beer game. So yeah. it's basically the, they'll, they'll hopefully use this as their fridge filler and then have a carton of, mm. of or two of the two bays for those um, occasions where they want something, you know, just a little bit more, uh, interesting from a flavor perspective. Mm. So, so that that's it. So yeah, so sixty five thousand. We got them mm-hmm. in seventeen hundred. Mm-hmm. There's plenty more to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time, Richard. Any final words or thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, no, no. I, I think um, you know, uh, fantastic. Thanks for having me, Derek. You know, it's really I love talking about two bays. So um, uh, hopefully, people have, have shown interest. Um, and I would just say to people. Um, Best thing I ever did, I did a late in life, was to, to start my own business mm. um, and be in charge of your your own brand and destiny. But that's not for everybody either. Mm. Many people are very happy to do, um, you know, work for a, for a corporate employer and get the benefits of that. Mm. So um, either way is is successful so long as you balance your life. Excellent. Thanks, Richard. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.